How should a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we're spiritually prepared to study the word this evening, to make sure we are walking by the Spirit and in right relationship with God. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments, I will open in prayer. Our Father, we're very thankful we can come together this evening to reflect upon your word and to think through what you've taught us, and we can come to understand your word a little more clearly and precisely. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things that we're studying this, this evening. Father, we continue to thank you for this church, and we thank you for the uh, ministry that uh, and the benefits of this ministry that go out throughout uh, the world, and we pray that you would continue to provide for the needs that we have, that that may continue. Father, we pray for Guidance and direction for the leadership, we pray for. Uh, wisdom as we plan the future, and Father, we pray for us tonight that we might just focus upon you and your word as all-sufficient for us in every area of life. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, while you're turning in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 1, one other announcement I had, this specifically applies to those who are going on the Grand Canyon trip at the end of May. This is that uh, wrap trip that uh, some of you probably forgot about that I, I announced, and it filled up almost immediately last year at the, at the Chafer Conference, and we have approximately 22 or 23 people going. The trip is, uh, is full, but um, uh, for those of you who, because uh, some people may be listening as well who are going on the trip, uh, there are several DVDs and books that are available through Answers in Genesis, and for those who have not a great background in geology or science, there is a video for ki a kid series called Awesome Science that uh, Answers in Genesis has put together a series of DVDs dealing with different issues related to creation, and one of them is on the Grand Canyon. And I always find it helpful sometimes when I'm getting into an area that I don't know a whole lot about is to get a kid's book or a kid's DVD and watch that. Then it's basic enough for me to, to grasp it. And so this was a, a pretty interesting um, a DVD, and it's really targeted to, I guess, older kids and teens. So that's, a, that's good. Bill, you're probably past this, but it's still helpful little thing. So uh, maybe for your, I think your son-in-law and grandson are going on the trip, right? So they may want to do that. So this is available in the library, but primarily those who are going on the trip should take a look at it first. And if you want to borrow this, I'll leave it up here and you can grab it after class. Okay, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And the verse reads very simply, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, so far what I've done is I've just looked at Peter. We took three lessons after we did the overview. We took three lessons to review who Peter was, and that forms a, a lot of background for us in understanding this next uh, next 
phrase, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is an appositional phrase defining who Peter is. But the critical issue here is why does he state this? Because the, the fact that he is an apostle or that an author of an epistle is an apostle is not always emphasized, but Paul, Paul did not emphasize that in either his address to the Thessalonians in either First or Second Thessalonians. So when it's mentioned, because we believe that every word of Scripture is breathed out by God, that's known as plenary inspiration. Plenary means full or whole. Uh, verbal means the words, emphasizes the words. Plenary means the whole. All of the words are breathed out by God and inspired. That's not a dictation theory. That is simply the authorship of God. So when we look at anything, we need to understand why it's there. The author of Scripture, the divine author of Scripture, is uh, not does not waste his words. He's not loquacious. He is very precise in his use of vocabulary. And so when we have something mentioned, we should look to see why it is mentioned. And so when we ask this question, why does Peter say this at the beginning? It's not simply, and it's funny how many times you'll see this in some commentaries, that they'll talk about these opening greetings and just say, well, this was a common way in which a letter would be addressed. This is a common salutation where the author reveals himself in the first sentence and then identifies himself. And then uh, if he says grace and peace to you, this, these were common greetings at the time. Kairos was a common Greek greeting. Uh, shalom or peace was a common um, uh, Hebrew greeting. And so they combined these. But that is just an extremely superficial look at what, what's going on. Why in the world are these... Our phrase is used, what, why did God the Holy Spirit inspire this particular verbiage in this particular letter? And we can look and we can find a, an answer to that, that when Peter or Paul emphasizes their apostleship, they're primarily emphasizing their authority, their right to address individual believers or a local church in terms of belief and behavior in terms of what they believe, first and foremost, the doctrine, and then the behavior that grows out of that. And so the critical issue here becomes uh, authority. The word here for apostle is uh, apostolos. The grammar here is interesting because it doesn't have a an article with it in the Greek. The lack of an article doesn't mean it's not definite. It doesn't mean that Peter is saying an apostle of Jesus Christ as it is is translated in the um, uh, New King James. It's probably emphasizing the quality of the noun, the quality of the noun. It's neither indefinite or definite. In fact, you'll hear some people talking about Greek because they're familiar with the English article. We have a definite article and we have an indefinite article. The definite article is the. The indefinite article is a or an. In Greek, there's no indefinite article, so it's really improper to speak about the definite article. It's just the article. And it, the, its presence or lack of presence does not necessarily mean uh, that it is that the noun is definite or indefinite. For example, the classic example, some of you are aware of this, is in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In that last phrase where John writes the Word was God, he says that the Word, he uses the word God, theos, without the article. Now, if you get a knock on the door and your friendly neighborhood Jehovah's Witnesses are cruising through your neighborhood on a Saturday morning, I saw some the other day when I was out running, and they were about a block away from my house, and I chose not to stop and converse with them. And um, they will knock on your door and say, See, your Bible says that Jesus was a God. And they will base that on their understanding that because there's no article in front of God in the Greek, then it's automatically indefinite. That's not correct. It may be, but often when the article isn't present, it's simply emphasizing the quality of the noun and emphasizing the the essence of the noun. So that's probably how Peter is using it here. And that would go to the an emphasis on his unique position as an apostle, his unique authority as an apostle to address issues of belief first and then behavior which flows out from that. And as such, he has authority. And it seems to me that that without knowing a whole lot about the recipients of this epistle, other than they are Jewish background believers, which we get from the terms that are used, uh, the two terms that are used in the uh, address here to the pilgrims, that is resident aliens, a term uh, parapedidimas, which refers to... uh, Jews as scattered aliens and diaspora, which refers to the dis- the dispersion, the diaspora of the Jews, then this this um, emphasizes Jew a Jewish audience primarily, and so Peter is emphasizing his position of authority, and that he's been commissioned. And that's the basic ideas you see towards the bottom of the uh, purple box there. The meaning of the word apostle is someone who's been commissioned to perform a task, someone who's sent on a mission. Sometimes it's applied to a military or a political envoy or even an ambassador. The ideas we're going, going to see, and I'll state this several times as we go through this, is the word has a general and a technical aspect to it. And it's important to look at the context when you see the word apostle, the noun apostle, who's doing the commissioning, what are they commissioned to do, and to whom are they going. That tells you whether it's a specific term related to the apostles uh, or whether it is a general term related to a missionary that is sent out by a, a church. So there is a sense in which the Bible uses the word apostolos in a non-technical way. I find that very confusing today. Uh, some of you probably had similar situations. I was sitting at a dinner not too long ago with a number of Christian leaders, and one person on one side of the table was telling a story about another pastor at the other end of the table and referred to his apostolic anointing. I've learned to play poker in circumstances like that and just let it go. But see, there are a lot of people today who believe that these gifts have continued and either they believe they have the same kind of authority as the apostles in the first century or there are some within evangelicalism who try to uh, make apostle just a synonym for missionary. 
Now, I don't have a problem with that other than most people don't understand it that way. There is a way in which the Bible uses that, and we'll see that referring to Barnabas as an apostle because he's commissioned by the church in Antioch, and he was sent out with the apostle Paul on a mission to take the gospel to, to uh, Cyprus. So that is a, a legitimate biblical use of the term, but that's not how most people hear and understand the term. So it just leads to a lot of, lot of confusion. But what you'll run into now and then is you'll run into apostolic churches. You'll see, go past some church and the pastor is apostle so-and-so. I think when we were in Washington, D.C. last week, as we were walking from the Washington Convention Center to our hotel, there were about seven churches along the way. And um, one of them advertised that their pastor was apostle somebody or other. So this is the kind of thing that is becoming more and more normal in evangelical Christianity today because people are taught less and less and there's less and less in-depth studying and teaching. So when people aren't precise in their thinking, they just accept all kinds of general, general kinds of statements without um, without analyzing them. So we need to analyze this term just a little bit. And the reason, as I said, Peter is using this is because he's emphasizing his authority, and it seems from a, a perusal of this epistle that the folks he's writing to had a problem with authority. Just look at some of these things that he says. In First Peter 1, 2, as he talks about uh, three things qualifying their term as elect or select or choice ones, he says, first of all, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, second, in the sanctification of the Spirit, but third, it's for obedience. For obedience. And there's several of the times he mentions obedience. In First Peter 2.13, he, he says to, to his uh, readers, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. When we come to 1 Peter 2.17, he says, honor the king. In 1 Peter 2.18, he addresses servants and he says, be submissive to your masters with all fear. In 1 Peter 3.1, he says, wives likewise be submissive to your husbands. In 1 Peter 3.5, he says that wives were uh, uh, in former times were submissive to their own husbands. He uses Sarah as an example in uh, 3.6. And then in 1 Peter 4.17, he says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? So obedience seems to be a major issue in this this epistle related to his recipients. So I want to take some time this morning, or this evening rather, uh, just to look at the doctrine of apostleship and review that for us and go over some material that I haven't included in this in the past. So first of all, we're just looking at the term apostle. The noun, it comes as a noun, and the verb is apostello, which we'll look at later, but the noun for the office is apostolos. In classical Greek, this referred to the commander of a military or naval operation, or it could, one example refers to the governor of a Greek a colony. Originally, the word was used as an adjective which described the message that was sent 
usually by way of the sea. So a message would be given to a uh, ship commander to take somewhere and to deliver it. And by application, the word would be transferred eventually from the um, the message that was being sent to the messenger who was carrying uh, carrying the message. So in classical and Hellenistic Greek, it just had a general sense to refer to either a dispatch or someone who was sent to carry uh, the dispatch. In the Old Testament in the Septuagint, the word's only used one time, and that's used to refer to the prophet Ahijah in 1 Kings chapter uh, 14.6, and it's only used one time in uh, literature that was during the New Testament period, during the first century, by Josephus in sending uh, envoys or messengers to, to, to Rome. So what we see in the New Testament, though, is a very distinct usage that the term apostle, for the most part, referred to a man in the New Testament officially commissioned by an authorizing agent and given the authority to perform a task. Um, This is significant. He's commissioned by someone or some organization in authority. He receives uh, a, a commission to carry out a task and the authority that goes with carrying out the task. And frankly, if you're not given authority to carry out a task, you can't carry out the task. Authority always goes hand in hand uh, with with leadership. So it's given in this sense, and it's applied in both a general as well as a specific sense. Uh, in the Hebrew, there's a word that's used, uh, a shaliach. A shaliach, that's spelled S-H-E-L-I-A-C-H. A shaliach is someone who is sent on a mission, sent on a task as a representative of someone else. Now, there's a lot of discussion among scholars as to whether that's the background uh, for the concept of apostleship in the New Testament, but evidence for that is is extremely um, uh, lacking. So we don't know what the background was other than perhaps just just verbal similarity. Now, the first use of the verb to send by Jesus in terms of the Gospels is found in Mark chapter 3, verse 14. We'll look at that in just a minute. Mark chapter 3, verse 14. And the first use of the noun, interestingly enough, is in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, and a parallel passage in Luke 6.13. Now, we have seen this recently in our Sunday morning study in Matthew 10.2. So let's just look at the, each of these verses here and make some observations. In each of these passages, we're, we're studying what books? We're in the Gospels. The Gospels are in which, di- which dispensation? They are in the age of Israel, the dispensation of the Messiah during those three years of Christ's ministry, that hinge dispensation. A lot of dispensationalists put that uh, within the dispensation of the law, which is acceptable, but I believe those last uh, three years are distinct enough to be a hinge dispensation. It's not the church age. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. The church hasn't even been announced yet. Jesus doesn't announce the church until sometime later. So when the the word apostle, apostolos, or its now, uh, verb form apostello is found here, it's not talking about what we get after the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is really your huge division 
between uh, Old Testament patterns and what is distinct to the church age. So in Mark 3.14, we have the verb. It also involves somewhat of a, uh, and we have the noun in a, in a um, textual variant. The verse reads, Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Now you'll find that if you're looking at your New King James Version. That's what you'll read. But if you've got some other versions, now not all, because this is a, one of those passages where there's a textual variant. If you've got a New King James and you look in your margin, or you look, there's a footnote down uh, of explanation down at the bottom of the column, and it will say something like the NU text uh, um, adds and called them apostles. And what they mean by the NU text, I thought that was an interesting little play on words there, that, that abbreviation refers to the, uh, the N stands for the Nestle Elan text, and the U stands for the UBS text. Those are the two printed versions of the so-called critical text of the Greek New Testament. And it's <clears throat> the NU as an acronym spells new, and that text form is usually contrasted to the majority text, which says that the form that's found mostly in uh, the older manuscripts, I mean the majority of manuscripts, is the correct reading. Uh, the NU, the Nesselon and UBS text, take the view that if it's found in one or two of the oldest manuscripts, then that seals the deal. Um, so this isn't even found in, uh, I think, but one or two older texts, and so even the uh, critical text uh, has varied over the years. Some years it's included this, some years it's not. In my UBX text, it even puts it in brackets, so... They're not even sure, and the majority text, of course, omits it. And that's that phrase that's located right here, and called them apostles. So that's probably not in the original text, and if it was, that would be the first use of the noun form. The first use of the verb is here, that he might send them, apostello, out to preach. Now, who's, who are they, who's commissioning them? Jesus. What's he commissioning them to do? To take the gospel of the kingdom to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So that's not the mission that they're given when they become apostles in Acts chapter 2. So that is still under an Old Testament, under an age of Israel economy. It is pre-church. When we get into Matthew 10.2, which is a, a parallel, we see now the names of the 12 are these and list the uh, lists the apostles there and identifies them as the 12 apostles. So that's, but they're still not apostles in the church age sense of the term because they're sent to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. They're not sent out to the Gentiles with the message of the church age gospel. Luke 6.13 uh, says the th same thing. When it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. So this is not the New Testament apostolic gift yet. Another interesting use of the term apostolos is in Hebrews 3.1, where the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brethren... Now, who's the writer of Hebrews addressing? Jews. 
Again, like Peter, he's addressing a Jewish background audience. So as we went through our lengthy study of Hebrews a few years ago, uh, we studied this. Uh, when the writer says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, indicating that they are tr- truly uh, believers and saved, he says, Consider or reflect upon the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. Now, the term confession here. Uh, has the sense of a body of doctrine. That is what we confess to believe. It is. It relates to the basics of the, our biblical faith. So um, the term here, as it is used, is describing something about Jesus. Now what's interesting is the term apostle is only applied to Jesus in this particular verse. But it's used in a distinct grammatical sense. Uh, it's used in relationship to high, the word high priest. Now, this doesn't come across real well in the English. It does a little bit. See, you have an English. You're getting a lot of grammar tonight. Some of you are about to fall asleep, but this is important. In English, you do have the uh, article, definite article here in front of apostle, which reflects the Greek. And no definite article in front of high priest, which reflects the Greek. And this would indicate that these two come together in what is called a hendiadis. This isn't a Granville Sharp rule because these are specific terms. Uh, it's what is called a hendiadis. Now, in the Old Testament, the high priest was considered to be sent from God. And in fact, Moses was called an was called the the verb apostello is used. The Greek word is used in the Septuagint of Exodus three ten when God said to Moses that I will send you to Pharaoh. Now here we have these two nouns uh, connected by one conjunction and only one article at the beginning, and so it is in in a hendiadis construction. This would be. Uh, viewed that the first noun is viewed as an adjective to the second noun. Okay, so that would be translated the sent high priest. Okay, the sent high priest. It is it emphasizes something about the second noun. That first noun is used in an adjectival sense to the to the second noun. That's the same kind of thing we have with pastor-teacher over in Ephesians 4.11. The pastor-teacher there is a hendiades construction, and it would be translated the pastoring teacher, emphasizing that the primary mission of the pastor is to teach. And the concept of pastor emphasizes his leadership uh, ability in teaching is how he feeds. And we saw that uh, in our study in, in Peter a couple lessons back in the John 31 passage when Jesus was telling Peter, if you love me, you will feed my sheep. That's the mission of both an apostle as well as a, uh, a pastor teacher. So what we have here is a reference to Jesus, not as an apostle, but as the set high priest, which fits with everything that is said about Jesus' high priesthood within the book or the epistle of Hebrews. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we look at the words, and one of the important ways in which we understand what a word means is not by looking it up in the dictionary. That's the shortcut most of us take. 
but the way in which a lexicographer and a good exegete analyzes a word is not to look first at the dictionary, but to look at how a word is used. That's why every year we have new words added to the dictionary and some words are taken out of the dictionary, is it has to do with the way in which words are used. New meanings are added uh, every year because the language is fluid and you have words that are used in a literal sense for a while and then they become used in figurative senses and in slang senses and in senses that maybe when we were younger we were told were not correct uses of the term, but because of the way in which words and usage is accepted and it becomes normative, then that the word picks up those new meanings. A classic example is if you read in your King James Version, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it talks about charity. If you look at it in a more modern translation, it uses the word love, which for modern English is a more accurate understanding, a more accurate word for translating the Greek word agape. But in 1611, the English word charity was a more accurate expression of the Greek word agape, but the word charity has changed its meaning over the last 400 years. So words are not absolutely fixed in their meaning. So we have to look at how words are used. When You, you can look at a, do a word study and you can see how word was used, as I did at the beginning with ap, uh, apostolos. I talked about how it was used in classical Greek, but that was some uh, 500 years before Jesus and before the New Testament. In those 500 years, the word changed its meaning. It came to be used and applied in, in different ways. And in the New Testament, it has a very distinct uh, sense of meaning. So the way in which we analyze a word is to go to its usage. In the New Testament, the noun is used 79 times. Uh, 66 of those 79 times are found in Acts and the Epistles. Three times it's used in Revelation and the rest of the times uh, it's used in, uh, which means about ten times it's used in the Gospels. So this is a term that is primarily focused on what happens during the church age between Acts 2 and um, the, end of the uh, end of Jude. The verb is used 130 times. Most of the time this is a general usage of the term. So-and-so was sent to do something. And so it doesn't take on a, a technical aspect. It's not necessarily related to the mission uh, of, the, uh, of the apostles. So one example of that is found in, uh, in comparing Mark 6 with Mark 3. In Mark chapter 3, which we looked at or mentioned earlier, Jesus commissions the twelve. And he sends them to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then in Mark 6, they return. And when he returns, it says, um, you know, these are the ones that were sent. So it's that generic use. It's not necessarily referring to a, a, a spiritual gift. Um, fifth point, the key issue that we have to determine whenever we look at find the word apostle is to ask these three questions. Who's doing the sending? Is it a church? Is it an individual? Is it Jesus? Is it God? Who's doing the sending? 
God sent Jesus. So in that sense, you have something totally different from the use of the word apostle as we normally think of it in terms of the 12. What's the mission? What are they sent to do? Who's doing the sending? Um, and what is the what is the mission? And third, when does the sending occur? Does it occur during the in the Gospels, or does it occur in the Church Age? So those are the basic issues to determine during during context. Now, when we get into an examination of the usage of the word, uh, as we get into the the um, the epistles, Acts and the epistles, actually, we see that there are two categories of apostles. The first category refers to those to whom this unique spiritual gift was given. Those to whom this unique spiritual gift was given, this group identified as the twelve, but at first they lacked Judas, they picked up Matthias, and then we don't hear anything more about Matthias. Revelation 21.14 says that um, <clears throat> says that the twelve apostles are the foundation in the New Jerusalem. And that always raises the question, well, which twelve? Because Paul's an apostle too. It's an interesting conundrum that I'm not going to get into, but there's often always a talk about the twelve tribes of Israel, yet how many tribes were there? Thirteen. How many, twelve, always talks about the twelve apostles, yet how many were they if we count Matthias? Thirteen. It's called Bible math. I'm no good with numbers. I'm just pointing these things out. It's going to be somebody more intelligent than I to figure these things out. But that, that, those, are the, those are the issues, and I think it's interesting how we see that comparison because the 12 were chosen originally in relation to the 12 tribes of Israel. They were sent to the 12 tribes of Israel, so there was a necessary and, and specific connection there. But um, while they... While Luke never condemns the, Peter for his choice of Matthias, it's also interesting that we must note is that the that apostleship in the New Testament is clearly stated to be a spiritual gift, and spiritual gifts come by the Holy Spirit, who's not given until Acts two, and that the Holy Spirit. Uh, gives those and distributes those spiritual gifts. They're not of men or a group of men, as Paul states in Galatians, Galatians 1.1. But Matthias is always included within the group of the twelve when we read through Acts. So those are the issues to work through. So um, the uh, what we know about the twelve is they're com- personally commissioned by the resurrected Lord Jesus. So this is seen in in what Peter says in Acts 2. They're commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus. They've seen the risen Lord Jesus. So this means that the, the apostle that we're talking about in terms of the church age isn't related to a commission given prior to uh, the resurrection of Christ or the day of, uh, of Pentecost. They're given the authority to communicate the gospel and church age doctrine throughout the world. They're given the authority to lead the incipient church, and they're given the authority to write the canonical books of the New Testament, although not all of them wrote. In fact, the only writers are Peter, Paul, and John. Uh, Jude and James were not apostles. 
They are the half-brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ and leaders in the early church who were associated with the apostles. Same with Luke. So they're given the authority to write the canonical books and and, uh, and then they were temporarily empowered to perform miracles and healings to authenticate their mission. As Paul states in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, performing the signs and wonders of an apostle. Their tempor- this is a temporary spiritual gift which vanished with the death of John in A.D. 96. Now, that's important to note because when people make a claim today that they're an apostle, the biblical apostle, capital A, had to be a witness of the resurrection and also uh, appointed by Jesus Christ. That's impossible for anyone today. A second way in which the word is used in the New Testament is as a pioneer missionary commissioned by a local church in the first century who did not possess the spiritual gift of apostle, but was sent out under the authority of those with the gift of apostleship. Now, where you get into a big debate with folks from the charismatic side is that that's why they believe that these gifts continue is because uh, they believe the gift of apostle continues, the gift of tongues continue, all of these things. But when we carefully analyze what 1 Corinthians uh, 12 state, 1 Corinthians 13 states, that there are gifts that clearly cease, and they ceased at the end of the apostolic era, the gift of knowledge and the gift of wisdom, then there are clearly gifts that were designed to temporarily lead the church before the canon was completed. And so the gift of apostle, the gift of prophet, the gift of uh, the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, these were temporary gifts given because the church did not have a completed canon uh, canon of Scripture yet. So the, the first meaning of the word refers to those of the twelve, and then the second refers to the uh, a pioneer missionary that was commissioned by a local church for a specific limited mission. Some of the um, ways where we see this in Acts 14.14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, now see, that's not talking about, that's not putting Paul in the same, I mean Barnabas in the same category as Paul, but they're both commissioned by the church in Antioch to take the gospel uh, out on the first missionary journey. And in Romans 16:7, Paul says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Now, there's a couple of ways that this is handled, and this, this, this phrase of note among the apostles uh, more likely means that they had a positive reputation among the apostles. But it is possible that it is simply referring to them as uh, as part of a group of missionaries who were traveling with Paul and others spreading the gospel in the first century. So this does not mean that the group of capital A apostles was larger, uh, larger than the 12. So we have to distinguish these different understandings, different meanings, different uses of the word apostle. 
Next point is in the church age, apostle was a spiritual gift. As a spiritual gift, it's not something that can be bestowed by some human being. It can't be given by another apostle. It can't be given by a human being. It can't be given by a local church board. That uh, It's not something that comes with ordination. It was a sp- specific spiritual gift that was bestowed at the moment of salvation by God the Holy Spirit. Now we see this in a couple of, of key passages. 1 Corinthians 12, of course, is a central passage for spiritual gifts. And there Paul writes, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Now he has an order there indicating priority and significance or the order of merit among the spiritual gifts. And this is reflected also in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Uh, and it it's connects over to Ephesians 2, 20, which states that the, fa- that the prophets and apostles were the foundation of the church. So apostles and prophets are foundational. Teachers were, uh, um, along with evangelists, were given for the equipping of the saints. So we have um, the, the apostle listed as a spiritual gift, which is important. It's not just an office. It is also a spiritual gift. In Ephesians 4.11, another important passage, Paul writes, He himself, that is Jesus Christ in context, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers. This is the passage that lays the foundation and gives the basic biblical job description for the role of these leaders. Apostles and prophets were foundational. They were limited in the early church. Uh, Evangelists and pastor teachers continue, uh, and their purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We often think of the evangelist as someone who goes out and does evangelism, which he will do, but his job is description within the local church, his ministry, because all spiritual gifts have their primary focus as a ministry to the local church. His primary ministry is to equip and train other believers to do evangelism. Just because you don't have the gift of evangelism doesn't mean you can't be trained to evangelize and to witness. Just because you don't have the gift of teaching doesn't mean you can't teach. Everybody has certain responsibilities to teach. If you're a mother, a father, a grandmother, a grandfather, uh, you have that responsibility. If you have the time and you can teach in prep school, and we do need some new people to volunteer to help in prep school, uh, you can do that, and you can be trained to do it and to do it well. Uh, What's required is just someone who is willing to do it. One of the best Sunday school teachers I ever had and one of the writers of the curriculum that I grew up under was a woman named Ursula Kemp who was a, a, a Jewish and escaped the Holocaust and came to Houston, trusted the Lord, and about a year after she was saved, she was asked if she would teach uh, first grade Sunday school. She hadn't been saved but a year, and she said, no, but I'll, I'm willing to learn. And I know a lot of believers who've been saved for 30 years, and they would—they don't think they know enough to teach first grade Sunday school. That's just an excuse to not do what God would like for you to do. So we're all to be involved in the work of ministry to edify the body of Christ. 
So here we see in these two passages, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, that the role of the apostle is to equip the saints in the early church. This was a spiritual gift that was a leadership gift as well as a communication gift in the uh, in the in the early church. Now, apostles had certain qualifications. This was important because to understand these qualifications, because when Paul uh, deals with them in uh, some passages where he's dealing with false teachers and false apostles. He makes the point that there are those who are coming along claiming to be apostles when they were not, so that there are certain qualifications that were laid down uh, for um, for apostles. First of all, they had to have been given the gift by the Holy Spirit. They were appointed to apostleship by the Holy Spirit, which we've seen in the passages we've just looked at in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, as well as 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11, that God the Holy Spirit is the one who distributes the spiritual gifts. A second thing is that they had to have been uh, a witness of Christ's resurrection. Acts one twenty two. Peter lays this down when he's looking for someone to replace Judas Iscariot. He says, um, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they were witnesses of his resurrection so that they could be a witness of his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 8, as Paul is talking about the significance of the resurrection, he said, then last of all, he was seen by me also. He's establishing his credentials as an apostle that he saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who had commissioned him. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he states that he was the last one seen. Uh, He was seen by me also as one born out of time, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of Christ. It doesn't mean he's not an apostle. He just recognizes the grace of God in providing for him and calling him, even though he was a murderer of, of uh, early Christians. Another sign or uh, indication of the credentials of an apostle was that they had the ability to perform miracles. Miracles were delegated uh, to to them, and that authenticated the gift. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, we read that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So signs and wonders were something that gave credibility to the message, but they're not going to convince people. Jesus performed a lot of miracles and didn't convince people that he was the Messiah. The apostles performed a lot of miracles, but it didn't convince people of the everyone of the truth of the message. It just established their uh, their credentials. This was seen from the very first day of the church age and on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. In Acts 5.12, we read, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. So this emphasis from the beginning establishing their credentials. In Acts 16, 16 through 18, we have the description of this um, uh, slave girl who's demon-possessed who was used to tell fortunes. 
and uh, they were she, they fought, the girl was following Paul, making these proclamations. This was the demon speaking in verse 17 that these men are the servants of the Most High God. And then Paul turned and cast the demon out of her uh, in Acts 16:18. That's a sign of one of the miracles that he performed. And in Acts 19:11 and 12, talks about how even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from Paul's body, things that he had worn, to those who were sick, and they would be healed, and evil spirits also uh, were cast out on that on that basis. So those are the, uh, the uh, authentications. Now, what we see here under point nine is that apostleship came only after the day of Pentecost. That's just an important point. I want to reiterate that. It's when you read through things, I read through a lot of new articles this time in different Bible dictionaries and theologies on apostleship, and everybody, no, nobody seems to make this distinction. They think apostleship began with Matthew 10 and Mark 3, but they don't make this important distinction that it's a spiritual gift, and spiritual gifts didn't come until Acts 2. So you can't have the church age spiritual gift of apostle until uh, the day of Pentecost. Um, Matthew sixteen eighteen is the first time Jesus talks about the church. We t- studied this when he talks to Peter and he says, on this rock I will build future tents. I will build my church. So the church wasn't even started yet in the Gospels. On the 10th point... The apostles were recipients of direct revelation from God and were the only authorized source for revelation. This is a really important point. They received direct revelation and were the only authorized source for revelation, either the apostles or their companions. But like like Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, it is uh, generally understood that that was what he wrote from Peter. Uh, Luke was Paul's companion. Uh, James and Jude were associated with the apostles in, uh, and they were leaders in the church in Jerusalem. So the apostles are recipients of direct revelation, were the only authorized source for revelation. Once the last apostle disappeared, so did revelation. Now that's really important to think this through. A couple of years ago, I read through a book. Um, they have all these books now on uh, to try to think, teach people how to think critically, and they're called the three views or four views or five views of this topic or that topic, five views of the rapture and four views of this and five views of the Holy Spirit and these kinds of things. And they're helpful because they'll take a proponent of one view and he will argue his view and then he's responded to by the other positions. And so you get to see the different arguments and strengths and weakness of the uh, the different views and it helps develop critical thinking skills. Well, I read a book several years ago on four views on the miraculous gifts. And the man who argued for, I didn't agree necessarily with his argument, but uh, with all of his argument, but he argued for the cessation of the sign gifts and the cessation of tongues. He never talked about 1 Corinthians 13. He argued exclusively on the fact that new revelation, if there were new revelation, it would require an authoritative body to judge whether or not that revelation was inspired or not. And since you only lay a foundation once when you construct a building, it's obvious that the apostles and prophets 
uh, were a temporary gift in the early church, and once they were gone, there was no longer an authoritative group that could judge whether someone's claim to have received revelation from God was true or not. I thought that was an important argument. I hadn't heard it put quite that way, and he did an excellent job arguing for it. I don't think that's the strongest argument, but I do think he made an excellent point that in the early church, when God was still giving revelation, there was a body, there was an authoritative group, the apostles and prophets, who you could appeal to and say, is this true or not? Is this biblical or not? Is this the word of God or not? And they would authenticate that. Once the last apostle is gone, you no longer have a divinely authorized, inspired group that can do that. And so that uh, that authority is significant. And that is why the apostles and prophets are the foundation, or one of the reasons they are the foundation of the church. It is from them that we learn what Christianity holds to, what is true, and what is not. Now, the 11th point I want to make is that Paul was called the apostle to the uh, the apostle to the uncircumcision or the Gentiles, and Peter was specifically identified as the apostle to the uh, circumcised. In Galatians two seven, we read, on the contrary, Paul writes this in, in uh, Galatians two seven. On the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, that's the gospel to the Gentiles, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. For he who worked effectively in Peter, that would be the Holy Spirit, he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. So there was clearly at least this much of a division of labor among the apostles, that Paul was specifically given the responsibility to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That didn't mean he didn't give it to the Jews. It just meant his primary Field of operation was to be the Gentiles. Doesn't mean Peter didn't take the gospel to the Gentiles. He was the one who opened the door to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 when he took the gospel to Cornelius. He, it just meant that the, that his primary area of operation was to the Jewish community. And then the last point is to address this issue of apostolic succession. In the Roman Catholic Church, as theology developed in the early church, the idea came along that that authority was passed on from one generation to another. The reality is, in the early church, there was a doctrine of apostolic succession, but it was the succession of truth. It was the succession of content. Apostolic teaching was what passed from one generation to the next, not apostolic authority. It didn't go from man to man. It was the content uh, that was important. As I pointed out when talking about Peter, the first bishop of Rome who tried to claim primacy or significance um, for for the bishop of Rome was Stephen I, who was a who's considered to be a pope uh, from 254 to 257. So this is 200 years after, roughly 200 years after the death of Peter. Uh, He was martyred. He was the first to make that claim, but it really didn't go anywhere. Uh, Sometime later, 
Pope Damasus, about 100 years after that, is the first pope to claim that the primacy of Rome uh, rested on Peter alone. This is 300 years later. Peter never, we have no record of Peter being involved with a local church in Rome. He didn't get there till late. When Paul wrote Romans, he, and he gives a shout out to all of his friends in Rome, he never mentions Peter, and they were on close terms. There's no indication that Peter was there. Peter had his ministry primarily in the east to the, to the Jewish communities in Babylon, as well as in the area uh, we know of as Turkey or Asia Minor. And then uh, the last bit that really co- sort of consolidated uh, Roman authority was under uh, Pope Leo I, and he consolidated that, that authority around 500, um, around 590, uh, 4, 595 A.D., and that's the development of this doctrine of apostolic apostolic succession and apostolic authority in the um, in, in Roman Catholic theology. So when we come to First Peter, Peter says Peter, an apostle. He's emphasizing his distinct role as an apostle. He's in a place of authority to tell his audience what they should believe, and how it should impact their behavior and their life. And we'll come back and look at the rest of the salutation next week. Father, thank you for this time to come together to reflect upon what your word teaches about uh, the apostles and about their authority. And we pray that you would uh, help us to understand the, the significance for us is that this makes what Peter says to us binding upon us. This is your word to us. It is the inspired, infallible, authoritative word from you to us through Peter, and that we are to respond in belief and obedience to what he says in this epistle. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.